because you already know, all of you, how much I'm losing it. Mm-mm. My eyes, gosh, it's just, I think I got it done. Any, any, any prayer requests? My great aunt. Say again. My great aunt. Diane. Diane. for Can I ask? Get Okay, Diane. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Thank you again, Lord, for the gift of our life from you and the gift of yourself this morning in the Mass. For your words to us um, recently, a lot of warnings. Um, your words last week were, were particularly severe. It's the Lazarus story and and Abraham telling them that if um, it's stunning, if he wouldn't listen, this is stunning, if he wouldn't listen to um, um, Abraham, Moses, and the prophets. He wouldn't listen to somebody from the dead. My God, if we don't listen to you, who will we listen to? It was a very stern warning and a reminder um, of how deaf we can be, uh, how often we don't hear very well. So I ask a blessing for all of us here um, that we open our ears and learn to hear. The word hear carries an implication of obedience. To hear means to do, really. So let a blessing be upon us. Help us to hear better than we do. Not just let things that enter our minds stay there. Um, help us to act on them, to give them a body, a will, to make them real. Um, I ask this blessing um, with a special care for all of us. Um, ask a blessing on um, Barbara, Bob's um, sister, his daughter as well. Um, for um, Gita's daughter, who's getting married this weekend, um, um, bless their marriage. I know that it's a concern for her. She would have asked for our prayers if she weren't. Bless that marriage. Let, let her daughter um, fall into love with you and her husband, and he as well with her. Um, <laughs> if I were to wish anything for them, I would wish that they both begin their marriage understanding that they don't deserve each other. If we went into our marriages thinking that, we would be better. We don't deserve each other. Um, everything that comes to us is a gift. We're so often presumptuous, think we deserve more and then get upset when we don't get it. Bless their marriage um, with the spirit of humility as they go forward. Um, let it be for Brigida, or I mean Gita as well. But who am I missing in our, I know we've been carrying people in our prayers. Sue. Sue, um, um, she went in for um, um, an exam today, concerned, I know greatly concerned. Um, watch over her, protect her, most importantly, quiet her heart. Um, watch over Mary and her recover from um, the procedures that have taken place. Um, for anybody else who's carrying some concern about medical 
problems here in our group tonight. Um, let our focus be less on physical realities, they're real. Mm -hmm. Help out where they, help out where, um, where you can. Um, most importantly, watch over our hearts and minds and whatever we do with them. Um, there's lots of things we can't change, but we can grow in our trust in you and um, bring that um, to our relationships with each other. And Mark's grandmother, aunt? Great aunt. Great aunt. Glad to see Mark again. <laughs> Missed him. I don't know why. Um, <laughs> glad to see him. Um, watch over Valerie while she's away. But um, let a special blessing be upon Mark's great aunt. What's her name? Diane. Diane. Watch over her in her age. Um, let her growing older as she gets ready to leave this world, draw her closer to you. Help her to make preparations to leave it, to be with you. Have a gladness as she does that. We offer all of these prayers um, in your name, Christ our Lord. Amen. Can you take out your the two poems that I mentioned, the Gentle Lesson and Shakespeare? I'm going to read from Chaucer first. Both of these poems that I'm going to read tonight actually bear on what we're directly. Um, they're going to bear. Gosh, they're going to bear directly on um, all's well that ends well. Um, um, and you you won't see the connection. I don't want to go into it, but just hold on to these poems because they're um, they throw a light on what we're doing. I wanted to read from the general prologue again because I've done it before and I know you've heard it, but this would be our last uh, time with Chaucer. I wanted you to hear his Middle English again before we went. So this is the opening to the, of the prologue to the Canterbury Tales. I want to read that and then I want to read his poem, the small poem called Gentilessa. I'm not going to comment on Gentilessa except to say what Chaucer is talking about is that gentleness that has its roots in Adam, because that's the way he was created. And if you accept that, you know that the source of that gentleness in Adam when he was created was Christ, the Word. So when he's talking about gentleness, the English world would have on its mind a gentleman. They would have England, the aristocracy. If, when you read this poem, you realize that's not what Chaucer's saying. As, an effect, as a matter of fact, he's taking on that notion. He's saying the gentleness isn't confined to, class, to classes, what you've inherited by the class that you were born into. People have that at birth, and they can either grow in it or not. So by gentilessa, he's talking about something more original, more primary. The source of it is Adam, and ultimately... Um, um, Christ, the Word, um, through Adam. And then I want to read um, Shakespeare's 94 for its relevance on what we're doing, but the opening lines of the general poem from Canterbury Tales. Quando era aprile with the shudder's foot, 
the drach of March has spirited to the root, and bathed every vein in sweet liquor of which virtue engendered is the flora. When Zephyrus eke with his sweet breath inspired hath in every hold and heather the thunder croppers in his young sonna, hath in the ram his halvacuras he runna, in small fallows making meldea, that sleep in all the neck with open yea, so pricketh him, natura in her courages. So this is what happens when spring comes, nature wakes up, the birds sing, the flowers come to life. Then long and folk, people long to go on pilgrimages. Then long and folk to go on pilgrimages, and palmeres for to seek in strange strondes, to fan in hallways, kuta in stronde landes, and especially from every shiris ande, of Engelon to Canterbury they went, they go. The holy blissful matter for to seek, that him hath hopen, but they may, but that they were seeking to look for help in from St. Thomas. Befell that in the season on a day in Southwark at the Talbert as he lay, ready to wander on my pilgrimages to Canterbury with full devout courage. But Nick, when come into that hostelry, well Nina and twenty in a company of sundry folk, by adventure he falle, in fellowship in pilgrims, where they alle, that toward Canterbury wolden. The chambers and the stables were weed, and well we were in Isa ate besta. And shortly one that son was to rest, so had he spoken with him every each honor, that he was of ear fellowship anew, and made forward era for to Isa to take our way. There is ye divisor, as you will all see. That's something of what it would sound like in Chaucer's poetry. You know that I've been saying from the beginning that poetry has to be read. You, you have to hear it. And if you can imagine, Shakespeare's English is not ours. Even if we read it that way, you're going to hear something of the inflections and tone that you just heard from Chaucer. Not as strong, because Shakespeare comes 150 years later, 200 years later. But you'd hear some of that. So it would be between Chaucer's English and our own. Okay. Gentilessa. The first stoke father of Gentilessa, what man that claimeth gentle for to be, must follow his trace, let's go back to the sources, all his witties dressa, vertu susua, and visas for to flee, for unto vertu longeth dignite, and noch tervis, softly dare he deme, all where he meet her crone or diadem. Um, our, our lineage, our heritage goes back to Adam. It's there that we received our dignity, um, our power for virtues. Um, and um, it's not a matter of class, being born into a class, um, or being educated by a class, no matter if he wore a mitre, a crown, or a diadem. Whether he's a king or a priest, does not matter because gentleness is something inherent. This first talk was full of rich ridwissinessa, true of his word, sobre, piteous, free, cleaner of his ghost and loved busyness, against the vice of slaughter in honest day, and but his heir love virtue as did he, 
He is not gentil, though he rich sima, where he meter chrono or diadem. Doesn't matter how noble he seems on the outside. Um, gentleness is something inward. Visa may well be to era to all richessa, but there may there be me no man as men may well see, bequeatha his heir to virtuous noblesse, that is appropriate unto no degree, but to the first father in majesty. We can't find it in our heirs and immediate heirs in a class. But to the fairest father in majesty that maketh him his heir, that con him queme, awihimitra krona or diademe. Virtues are not appropriated. They don't derive from class. You can say that <laughs> Chaucer is the, um, the um, what do I call it, the prototype, the original source of inspiration for the French and American revolutions. And I'm saying that, it may sound shocking to you, but if you read this, you see that what he's saying is the source of real virtue isn't every man has it if he will open to it and receive it. Because the source of it is Adam, and we all go back to him. Can you take out Shakespeare? This sonnet is one of a sonnet cycle. Petrarch, Dante's successor, wrote a sonnet cycle to, um, God, oh boy, what's the, the beloved, um, what's the name of the, the wreath, the, Laura, Laura. He wrote a sonnet cycle to this woman Laura, who was an image of a little bit like Beatrice, he was inspired by Dante. But Petrarch represents a, a serious shift in the modern world because when you enter Dante's world, you're still in a sacred world. When Dante encounters Beatrice, we know from our reading she's a Christ bearer. When she meets at the, him at the top of Purgatory, she comes to take over from Virgil. You all know that. Virgil's been a great guide. Dante's showing we should be open to learning from pagans. Beatrice comes to take him the last leg, and everything she shows him um, makes clear the intelligibility of everything in nature. The reason everything is intelligible in nature is because the God who created it all is intelligible. So she's opening up this universe, and, and as he moves along, things become more and more sacred, closer to God. More and more of God is revealed. You all know that from the Verdiso. Um when Petrarch wrote, you, you get a sense that there's a secularizing of, of the beloved and an idealizing of her. <clears throat> Beatrice, you can say, is idealized, but she's an image of the Trinity. <clears throat> He's not projecting an image on her. She is that. There's a serious question when you look at um, Laura, whether she isn't an idealization of a woman, that, that a shift takes place. So, B, so Petrarch writes the sonnet cycle, and like so many of the Renaissance writers the, the Engle, in England, they were all following re, Italian Renaissance models. Shakespeare is aware of that cycle. He writes his own sonnet cycle. 
and it involves a love triangle full of betrayals, this young youth, this man that he hopes to bring along, and this dark woman. And this dark woman is mysterious and seductive. The young kid comes under her spell. So there, we're in a modern world called betrayals, problems. Um, but in so many of them, in the ones that I've given, Shakespeare is writing to his beloved. And they're some of the most tender poems that we have in English. We won't read some tonight, but we will when we go along. This one I, I chose tonight because it has a direct bearing on Helena when we get there. So this is Sonnet 94, Shakespeare's um, one of the sonnets late in the sequence. I think there's 154, I can't remember how many. Sonnet 94. I want everybody to pay close attention to this. Remember the new Shakespeare sonnet. It has three quatrains, four lines, the A, B, A, B, alternate rhymes. Three quatrains, each one of them takes the same theme that plays a variation on it. So it's three different ways of looking at the same theme, and it ends with a couplet. Now, most people just talk about that as if it's technical. Three quatrains, couplet. It's like the rhyme scheme in Chaucer, you know, just rhymes. That's not so. For Shakespeare to show that, um, that his theme can take three different variations, three different aspects, makes it clear that he shows being everywhere. It can be in a bird, it can be in a fire, it can be in a tree, but it's there. Otherwise, he couldn't make a conclusion that's universal in its nature. Is that clear? By taking three different things as a way of illustrating a common thing, he's showing that there's something universal. There's being is everywhere around us. So even if things are different, they're related. Is that clear? Because lots of teachers will just go right by it and make it technical. It's not technical. It's deeply philosophic. Being is everywhere. All things participate in it. So even if they're different, we can see they're somehow related. There's an underlying connection. So this is just not technical. It, it's, it's more profound than that. Okay? So be aware that there are three different treatments of this thing. What he's talking about is this group of people who receive their gifts and who don't do with them what other people do. Because most people take their gifts and use them to their advantage. Let it be a woman who's a great celloist, piano player, singer, a man who's a great basketball player, uh, um, a woman who has a legal, is in a law, she's a lawyer working in a law firm. It doesn't matter what it is. Most, too many people use the gifts that they've been given for themselves, to advance themselves. There's a small group of people who inherit these gifts who don't do that. He, he talks about the way that they husband them. They take care of them. Okay? So three different illustrations, three different exempla of a common truth. Okay? That's the poem. Okay? Shakespeare's Sonnet 94. They that have the power to hurt and will do none, that do not do the thing they most do show, who moving others are themselves a stone, unmoved, cold, and to, to temptation slow. They rightly do inherit heaven's graces and husband nature's riches from expense. They don't waste them. 
They are the lords and owners of their faces, others but stewards of their excellence. You know that if you go to an opera or an um, a orchestra performance or something, a, a great movie, a show, or whatever it is, um, that you know that these people have the power to inspire other people, to move them, but this small group that he's talking about don't do it for themselves. They are the owners of their faces. People will be moved by them. But they themselves are unmoved like stone. Okay? They have this power of detachment that allows them to do their work when it moves others without giving in to the temptations that that power has. Is that clear? They rightly do inherit heaven's graces and husband nature's riches from expense. They are the lords and owners of their faces, others but stewards for their excellence. The summer's flower is to the summer's sweet, but to itself it only live or die. But if that flower with base infection meet, the basest weed outbraves his dignity. For sweetest things turn sourest by their deeds. Lilies that fester smell far worse than weeds. Is everybody clear on what the endings say? Anybody want to offer a summary of it? Cool. In case you didn't know, putting this class at risk here, I'm going to be picking on you every time that you're here. You're the only young one, and you're the only one holding up the. You're the only one holding the rest of us up. So, do you have any notion what that means? The sweetest things turn, or a, or a beautiful flower, if it becomes infected, it becomes worse than other flowers that were never as good as it was. For sweetest things turn sourest by their deeds. Lilies that fester smell far worse than weeds. Can you paraphrase that? What's he saying? Um, I think he's saying, like, if you don't use your gift in, like, either a good way or just don't use it at all, then, like, you're just letting it rot. Yeah. Because if you use it, it's a, if it's a really good gift, when it goes bad, it's going to go worse than other... Is everybody, if you take, a, take, a, take two pieces of meat, just for, to make this vivid, take two pieces of meat and make one of them the best kind of cut, yeah, and you put it out in the sun, which one is going to draw the most flies that's, that's going to become more corrupt? Richest one, right? It will become fouler. Um, wherever people receive gifts, if they... If whatever we do with them makes them bad, they're going to become worse than the gifts of other people whose gifts weren't as good to begin with. Okay? Is everybody okay? It's a beautiful poem. We'll see the relevance of it, I hope, shortly. I want to go back to just a phrase before we start to go back to Chaucer and Shakespeare. Look at that opening line. This is going to be good for high school students. They that have the power to hurt and will do none. What Shakespeare had said, they that have the power to hurt but will do none. He didn't, most people would hear on a phrase like that, they that have the power to hurt but will do none. I mean, that's a natural. Shakespeare doesn't do that. By the way, think that, by the, this is a conjunction. Do conjunctions in themselves have meaning? Absolutely not. I mean, the, what they do is link things that have meaning. And means you're, 
you're connecting two things that are coordinate. But means you're connecting two things in opposition. This but, right? So it connects. It, it signals um, congruity or opposition, yeah? The, the, I think most of us that expect that line to run, they that have the ha power to hurt, but will do none. But he says, they that have the power to hurt, and will do none. That's making a decision not to do it. That's what I'm asking. It, making a decision, any, anybody else? I'm almost wondering if <clears throat> maybe it's like, the fact of having that power, like the right use of that power means specifically not using it to hurt people. Almost like if there were people out there that have the power to hurt and actually will hurt people, then it's almost like Shakespeare here is implying that that's an abuse of that power. With... Yeah, right. Almost like, almost like the thing that's disconcordant would be having the power to hurt and actually using it to hurt, as opposed to some other, some other choice. Yeah, I see it as a deliberate statement as a setup no. to the type, well, the type of person that he's talking about. Right. Explain that. Flesh it out more. It's a deliberate statement because you use yeah. the word and and not but. It would be a deliberate statement if he said but. I'm not following. Sorry. The type of person that he's talking about is one that has a gift and chooses to use it wisely. Okay. If you put the word but in there. They're not using it wisely. This is a this is a distinct choice. It's a yes. deliberate choice. That's what I that, said. That you know you have the gift. You know what's right and wrong, and you're still choosing to take the harder path or the wiser right. path. That's and right. I think that sets up the type of character right. you're talking about right. that runs the whole right. of the song. Let me let me qualify that. Let me nuance that if I can for a second, because if somebody had a power, but will do none, means he has the power but chooses not to do it. Yes. Okay? Okay? To say those that have the power and will do none suggest they're not having to overcome something in themselves. If they used but, it means they still go on to do good, because that's what he's saying, but will do none. If he said but, he's making it clear they're, they're still doing good. Right? So it implies an antithesis, but he's saying they're still doing good. For him to say they that have the power and will do none makes it clear that this group doesn't have to overcome something. They're acting in accord with a virtue that's inherent in them. They're being one with the virtue inside of them. There's no struggle to overcome. If he said but, and they went on to do no harm, they're doing no harm as to being virtuous, but they're having to overcome something in themselves. These people are acting in accord with a virtue being one with it. That's an extraordinary claim, this group. Okay? Let me read it one more time and then we'll go to Chaucer and Shakespeare. 94. Because notice what these people do with their gifts. They that have the they that have the power to hurt and will do none, that do not think that do not do the thing they most do show, who moving others are themselves as stone unmoved coal into temptation slow. They rightly do inherit heaven's graces and husband nature's riches for expense. They are the lords and owners of their faces, others but stewards of their excellence. The summer's flower is to the summer sweet, though to itself it only live and die. 
That flower is not trying to show off. It's not saying, look at me, how beautiful I am. It's living just to itself. It's being what it is. The summer's flower is to the summer sweet, but to itself it only live and die. But if that flower with base infection meet, the basest weed outbraves his dignity. Let there be an inferior flower. That inferior flower will look better than that good flower if that good flower goes bad. For sweetest things turn sourest by their deeds. Lilies that fester smell far worse than weeds. Okay? Beautiful poem, yeah? Okay. God, I love this stuff. Sorry. <laughs> Get done away with this stuff sometimes. It's amazing to me. Okay. Where are we? Let me do a quick review. Chaucer. Last week we looked at the women and what we saw is that generally speaking it's a it's a it's a safe conclusion. Uh oh. Somebody take my um, some of the more important things we dealt with with Chaucer, poetry the body. Christian love, church officials, and last week the women. Just very briefly to give a quick overview of this. We've seen that um, what Chaucer's doing is what the great poets before him were doing. That he's, in so many ways, he's carrying the past forward and redeeming it, giving it a new form, so that the present is a richer moment. It's fuller, it's got more... He's carrying more with him. Yeah, that's what every poet, Homer, Virgil, Dante, all of them, they carry the past forward so they're not just living exclusively in the present because without the past, the present would be virtually empty. I mean, that's what the modern mind wants to do, get rid of the past. What we're seeing in these poets is that they carry the past forward and it gives them a richness in whatever they do. What Chaucer's doing is taking all of these tales that these people told and he's relating them to us. I want to come back to that in a moment, but that's what he's basically doing. So po <clears throat> the poet is the spokesman for his time. <clears throat> that's what the poet is. He's the spokesman. He gives us a voice. So many people said to Robert Frost, they'd always had those feelings that he expressed in his po poetry, but they never knew until they read his poetry, and they felt as if he had given them a voice. So the poet is a spokesman. He helps us to see ourselves. But he brings a richness to our experiences to make us aware that there's so much more going on in us than we're aware of. He, he helps us to feel that. It's like an overabundance of gratitude that we're there more fully. Every one of Chaucer's stories is a twice-told story. Every one of Shakespeare's 
Every one of Shakespeare's stories comes from a, another source. So none of the poets are original the way that we like to think people are. They're, they're carrying, the, carrying the fast forward. They're retelling the story, but they're bringing something of themselves. They're renewing it. Almost all of the tales that Chaucer tells are from Boccaccio um, or Petrarch. And you know from the stories you've been reading, he's often referring to Herodotus, the Roman historians, everybody. Um, um, he's, he's rich with experiences from the past. So he's carrying the past forward, making it alive for us. So one of the functions of poetry is to keep the present, the past alive, to make the present richer. Words, we see, have almost a talismanic power. He's making this group alive for us now. We're actually experiencing what took place hundreds of years ago. But he was doing it then. They have a talismanic power. Words can affect things. I gave the example last week of God's fiat. Let this be, and it was. When the woman, when the widow says, go to hell, unless you repent, there's a moment when, <laughs> how stupid, there's a moment when he thinks about it and chooses not to, and he goes to hell. She didn't cause that, but her words are an occasion. It's almost as if they conduct them. It's like a truth from out of the center of the church, and the devil carries them off. Um, almost all of the stories, the really important ones, have to do with oaths, people keeping their oaths, because their word is who they are. If they break their word, something of their own selves is lost. It's not a small matter, because Chaucer knows that the ultimate origins of all words is the word, whole, intact. Every human being was made in God's image. This, this should have written it tonight. Um, what C.S. Lewis called, but um, the, one of the ancient fathers, Tertullian, I think, had this phrase, we, we did it when we did um, C.S. Lewis's Two We Have Faces. Um, the anima naturalite Christiana. Anima naturalite Christiana. The natural Christian soul. That every person is made in the image of Christ. So when a person breaks his word, he strikes at that wholeness that each of us was given in creation. We're each in the image of Christ. Dante made that really clear in a beautiful way. I thought when we were going up to Paradiso, I remember, because as he got closer to God, he was seeing resemblances to Christ everywhere. It's in the napkin, Veronica's napkin, it's in Mary. He's seeing resemblances because, and the irony, the paradox is, each person is distinctly who he is. But the closer you get to Christ, the more you grow to holiness, the more you resemble him, even with your own uniqueness. Yeah? So, um, Keeping a word is not a small thing for Chaucer. It, um, because one of the interesting, and, and the reason it plays, so, it plays such a big role in marriages is because when you make a vow, <laughs> the, the, the test becomes, will you keep it when things are hard? Um, the test of it will be, you'll see whether you did it for your own convenience because if things get hard, you can take off. Um, so vows are telling we, we, we recognize that, that we didn't completely give them when we made them or we did. That's why they play out um, so strongly. All the, it's not a light matter for Chaucer. It's who we are. We find out who we're made of, what we're made of. And you know for, um, from our work in Boethius that fortune's everywhere. 
If we keep depending on fortune, we're going to go into the tubes because fortune is never reliable. We're going to hit hard times. When we hit hard times, what will we do? Run away? Because they're not convenient? We didn't think about that when we made our vows? Vows are a test. They, they set up a test to find out who we are when things get difficult, when things go good, to see our integrity. So it's an important theme that runs through all, almost all the stories. And finally, I, I suggested this last time, that um, in an amazing way, Chaucer's doing something that all the pilgrims are doing. Remember, he's telling the story. He's, he's the one telling the story of other people's stories. They're on this pilgrimage. Each one is asked to tell a story. Chaucer's the one that's recounting them. When we look at the individual stories, we, we see that these people are, in lots of ways, very alone in their own worlds. Envious, proud, getting back at each other, telling stories on each other, wanting to hurt, <coughs> admiring, praising. Um, the, take Chaucer out of the picture, and we'd never get it. He's the one person, person bringing all of them together into a whole. It's only by his, the work of the poet that we can experience the wholeness of this journey, whatever part of it we have. The poet is the one who, who brings these things to us. If it's Chaucer, you know that he's steeped in Boethius. He's going to show that God is at work everywhere, that justice is playing out everywhere, whatever happens to us. So he's doing, um, he's doing this great thing in what he's doing. We also saw that he, um, I suggested that he's teaching us not to be ashamed of our bodies. He is absolutely candid about parts of our bodies and the silliness and foolishness. What's the word um, when you're foul-mouthed and the... God, my mouth. Huh? Lascivious? Mm -hmm. Body. 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 is very body. I like the pun on that. I mean, he's he, he, he at home with the body in ways that we aren't in our world. We're, there's a Puritan quality to so much of what we bring to our word. He's teaching us to be at home in our bodies, to not be ashamed of them, and to laugh at them. Um, two weeks ago we looked at the church officials and saw that basically they were all corrupt. They were using the church for themselves. Last week we looked at the women and we, you know, I asked the question, if you look at Chaucer, who comes off better, the men or the women? There's not a question. I mean, women, if you look at the two groups, are far better. The men are, for the most part, scoundrels. The, the, knights, the knight is one of the exceptions to that. He, he looks like a good man, and there are some other good men, but generally the women are, are much better. Um, they're closer to virtue. They practice virtue. When we looked at those stories last week, Constance, the prioress, the wife of Bath, Dorigen, um, all the women, the women make a point of praying. The men don't. I can't remember a prayer, or I mean a story in which a man told a prayer. Um, the women do, consistently. Miracles make up a, a more obvious part of the stories involving the women. They're praying to God. Um, constant praise to Virgin. Remember Mary when that yeoman's going to rape her, and he gets knocked overboard. So um, we're, sh we're showing the men getting caught up in the world, pride, envy, competition. They want to be better than somebody else. They're trying to get ahead. They're trying to put somebody down. The women are outside of that world. They're not taken up by it. And it gives them a freedom 
They're, they're, they're not as susceptible to the world the way the men are. So they bring a power to what they do in these stories that the men don't have. And one of the effects of that is miracles. God listens. He's responsive. He's approving. Um, there's a congruence between what happens. And moreover, there's a power in the love that women bring to things that inspires others to be converted. Constant does that with the sultan. Dorigen does it with the two men. You know, the, the, one that, um, the knight that she's supposed to make love with and then the, the clerk um, that paid the, 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 the Oregon, I mean, the, magician. The, hmm? magician. Yeah, the clerk magician that, that um, did away with the rocks. Those two men are converted by her love because they see in her something selfless. So very generally, Chaucer's showing us that there's a greater depth to women. Generally, the wife of Bath is a real exception. And I asked the question, I think last, I know I did it Friday. If you set the, did I ask this question, if you set the partner and the wife of Bath next to each other, who's worse? Did I ask that? No. Take a minute with it right now. If you set the partner, remember he's the one who uses church things to get what he wants and has no shame about admitting it. He, he exploits people, gets things. Um, remember the wife of Bath, it, she, her prologue is twice as long as any story in the book. She goes on and on about these men who have nothing good to say about women. She tells the story that in her last husband, she got so sick of him reading these stories about faithless women that, that she picks up the book and tears out three pages and throws it in the fireplace and he knocks her over and he's so horrified by what he does that he, he confesses his shame and, and the, the, the two live happily ever after. Um, she goes on and on in this prologue and then finally tells the story of this knight who has to find out what all women want and he meets this old hag and, um, and we talked about what that meant. I thought, I, I wish we had more time to particularly to pick up your comment, Justin. Whether when he makes that choice, whether, whether the fact that he gives the choice over to her, um, that is he submits his own will, transforms her, so that he sees what was always there, you know, the beauty that was there that only needed an act of love, or whether what he did helped bring that on. And the, the reason it's a serious question for me is, remember, in the ancient world, the ancient world had a powerful sense of beauty. That didn't wait on Christianity. It was already there. It got amplified tremendously with Christ, but there was a powerful sense of beauty, particularly in women in the ancient world. Um, but in the ancient world, the end was justice, to give what's due. When Christ came into the world, he didn't, he didn't come to give what's due, because if None of us did him to deserve him. He came to give us something we didn't deserve. So in Christ you have a power to transform things, to change them from what they were. I don't want to go into that right now, but I just leave that question. You know, when, when the hag tells the knight in the forest, um, she will give him the answer, and then she whispers in her ear, and, and at the court she calls in her de the debt that he has, to, he has to hold to his vow. And he gives her the power, and suddenly she becomes this beautiful creature who will be faithful. So, you know, we talked about what that meant, um, and, and 
and particularly what it meant for the wife of Bath that, that she would have given that story. Um, but, but go back to the, my question a minute ago. When you set the partner against the wife of Bath, who's worse? Any thoughts on that? Karen, who's worse? The partner. Why? Uh, because he uh, cheats people and tries to do things to, uh, for his own gain. And she just uh, is lusty. She's what? <laughs> lusty. Lusty. <laughs> One of the parishioners in Friday said he thought the wife of Bath, just let me go over her for a second because I don't want to remind, she's, she, Suzanne's description, which to me is really accurate, she said she's larger than life. She's just so full of energy. And remember, she uses every one of her husbands. She takes their property. She uses them. She exploits them. She twists everything back on them. Um, she, um, she offers her sex in exchange, and she withholds it for herself. There's almost nothing that she does. No, in fact, I can't think of a thing that she did that isn't for herself. She uses men. She sells herself. She gets their property. She makes it clear she wants their sex. Um, so Charles is pretty frank. I mean, I can go back over the passage. I'm sure you've read it, so you know it. But um, she's a selfish woman in lots of ways, and she, you know, she she goes on for whatever it is, 30 pages. The, one of the ironies of, of the wife of Bath is that she goes on criticizing these men for talking about faithless women. And everything she does puts her in those texts. She's doing exactly what she's describing, even though she wants to tell these men, get real here, you know, women aren't as bad as... So one of the great ironies of her story is that she's doing exactly what she doesn't want to hear. Um, so one of, the, one of the reasons that the parishioner offered, and I, I mean it's a compelling reason, is the partner is aware of what he's doing. And by the way, I don't want to extenuate that, but he knows the wife of Bath seems to be completely unaware of what she's doing. She's ready to fault others. She's very critical of all these people. She has no sense that I can recall that she's aware at all of what she's doing. Well, she frequently justifies. Hmm? The Bible says this, so it's okay that I do that. Say it again. She gives several examples where the Bible says it's okay to do right. things. Right, right. So I think in some cases she's trying to justify her actions. Oh, always. I, it's hard to see her doing anything without justifying herself. And she always uses these authorities. You know, it shows, it, it covers her, you know. Let me leave it, because I want to go on. But I just would like you all to think about that. Um, the, the parishioner on Friday thought she was worse. What I want to set off against that, I mean, the wife of Bath is a strange creature because she's so... Larger than life is a good description. One of the differences is that, is that the partner's dealing with spiritual realities. You know, it's on another level. And there's, so there's, there's a reason for looking at what he does, in, at least in one respect, worse. But they're both, what's troubling to me is that they're both, um, they're playing with their lives in a serious way. And the wife of Beth doesn't see it. She's so energetic and sort of turning everything on men that it's it's hard not to like her. But um. the problem with the partner is that he's he's like the lilies that fester. Oh he's yeah. Got more given to him. Yep. 
Yep. Yep. And he's doing wrong with it. Yep. She's sort of a natural born whatever narcissist. <laughs> well, is it also possible because she's the one that chooses to tell this tale about the old hag that becomes the beautiful woman and everything, you know? <clears throat> is it possible that that points towards some kind of a a hidden innocence within the life of Bath that, uh, and and maybe maybe some kind of a, a deep seated brokenness in her character that she's then trying to cover up with all this boisterous, or not even cover. She's unaware. I'm, yeah. I I so agree with what you're saying. Almost I don't like see she's it. hiding from herself. Or or, yeah. I mean that's. I look at her. My sense of the relationship between her and her tail, is that the tail un unconsciously me. That's me expresses a longing in her that she that she has no way of dealing with given this attitude that she brings. But in a sense it gives we don't know. Yeah. I mean that's a hard you you can't answer that within with any certainty, but I can't read it without one myself wondering whether it doesn't express a real longing in her for something for she, something real. Yeah, absolutely. But that she holds off because of, you know, the way she d deals with everything she deals with. Because there is a beauty to what happens in that. There's the the woman becomes beautiful. The, something transformative happens. It's a it's a tender tale. Anyway, let's leave it. Those that's Chaucer, if we can. Okay, um, the Canterbury Tales. Uh, it's this beautiful world. We we talked about it now. It's a united England. They're all going to St. Thomas's Shrine. Um, I I love Chaucer's opening, the one I read in uh, Middle English. You, you get a, such a different feel that these pilgrim these pilgrims are going to this, and um, they're drinking ale <laughs> along the way. They're having their beer at pubs and close to fights. It, it, they're so human, and what Chaucer does with them is is makes them human. He never passes judgment. Rare, rarely that I know passes judgment. The people judge themselves. It's like Dante's world. They convict themselves. What he's doing is helping us to love them when they're doing all this stuff. To me, it's a remarkable job. Okay, um, um, Griselda. I want to go through this quickly because I want to start you all on Shakespeare. The reason I wanted to end with Griselda is because it's one of the most problematic plays of the, of the, of the Canterbury Tales. Because she she is completely submissive to her husband, and you know from the story that he, he keeps testing her um, in, in, in what seems like ways that are beyond enduring, um, the things he asks of her. So let me, let me just briefly go through the story with some pages. And then I want to I look at um, Shakespeare. I want to get us going on that. You can go to, to, to the clerk's tale. Page three, um, 320. The host, <laughs> he's such a good man. He's this Paul Bunyan big guy who's ready to... to he, 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 to me, has the aspect of a bouncer in a bar. Just, you, sir, from Oxford, said those, God's life is coy and quiet as a virgin wife, newly espoused and sitting mum at table, 
Get up. I'm going to be saying, tell the tale. On wisdom's wings, says Solomon, there's time for everything. For goodness sake, cheer up, show animation. This is no time for abstruse meditation. Tell us a lively tale. So the, the clerk is going to tell this story on page 321. He makes it clear that the story comes from Petrarch. If you know the sources, Petrarch got it from Boccaccio in the Decameron. So once again, Chaucer just making explicit that this is a tradition being handed on, 321. Francis Petrarch, the poet laureate, they called him, whose sweet rhetoric of late illumined Italy with poesy, as Linian did with his philosophy. He goes on, so he tells the story that's already known of this uh, marquis in Italy who reached a point in his life, he'd been a bachelor, self-sufficient, didn't want to marry, and the townspeople come to him to ask him to marry, to have an heir, because they don't want to be left without a monarch, um, or, or a monarch that they don't think is a particularly good one. It says at the bottom of 322, I blame his failure in consideration of what the distant future might provide. He always fed his present inclination, hawking and hunting round the countryside. As to more serious cares, he let them slide, and worst of all, whatever might miscarry, he could not be prevailed, prevailed upon to marry. So nobody could do this until the townspeople come. They want to be delivered from these fears and given some assurance that they'll be protected if, by an heir that will come from his line, 325. God knows it's true that children in the main are much unlike their elders gone before. Natural goodness comes of God. This is Chaucer's poem, Gentilessa. Natural goodness comes of God. No strain of blood can give it, no nor ancestor. I trust in God's good bounty, say no more, my marriage, my condition, rank and ease, I lay on him. Do he as he may please. Now it seems like he's a very pious man here because he says, leave it in God's hands. We hear religious people say that all the time. So it sounds like he's turning it over to God. You know that what happens is he's out in the countryside and he sees this beautiful woman, Griselda, and he's so taken with her. He sets up this wedding day, everybody's expectant, they're rushing out to see who it is he's going to choose, and he ends up at, at the house of Janicula, the, the father, and Griselda. He comes to their house um, and speaks to the father, tells him his intention, and then he moves from the father to the daughter, Griselda, and he proposes, bottom of 3.30. And he says, since all is done in such a hasty way, will you consent or pause before you say? I warn you to be ready to obey my lightest whim and pleasure. You must show a willing heart, ungrudging night or day, whether I please to offer joy or woe, that is, for better or worse. I'm going to be as blunt as I can here, for better or worse. Whether I please to offer you joy or woe, when I say yes, you'll never say no, either by word or frowning, a defiance. Swear this, and I will swear to our alliance. And wonder at these words, quaking for dread, she answered, Lord, unworthy though I be, with so much honor, so unmerited. If it seems good to you, it is to me. And here I promise never willingly to disobey in deed or thought or breath, though I should die, and yet I fear my death. So they are married. By the way, is everybody aware of the rhyme scheme here? This is that royal stanza that I'd mentioned. Remember, he's either writing generally in royal couplets, A, A, B, B, C, C, just pairs of lines that rhyme. 
or these stanzas that go A, B, A, B, B, C, C. So they're delayed rhymes with a rhyming couplet at the end. Um, take any of them. And that she might not take the smallest bit of her old gear into his house, he bade his women strip her there, and I admit his ladies of the court were scarcely glad to touch the rags in which the girl was clad, yet the bright beauty of her natural glow was clothed anew at last from top to toe. So once again, he's showing us that there is this harmony that is always present, no matter what he's describing. It, it is... It is, to me, the most the clearest verbal, oral expression of the presence of God, that there is always a harmony going on because God is at work bringing good out of what we do. She gives, they give, she gives birth to a, a daughter, and he tests her by having um, um, a steward of his come take the child away and give it to his sister. The book uh, stops right there on page... 335, because I would be her, and I would take, she's taking my baby, <laughs> and saying he's doing away with my baby. He didn't, he died on 335, I would, I would have my Ruger 38 Special <laughs> with hollow point, hollow point bullets with a red laser on it, so I wouldn't miss. I would kill him and take my child and go. Okay. Let me continue. If we can go ahead with the story here. No, it's not right there. No. Here. Not, I can call the letter go. He's dead, so we know that now. So. Yes, he is. So he, this officer, comes, this steward, comes and takes her daughter and... Um, she willingly gives, she doesn't take out her laser or a gun, but <laughs> she's, she um, on 334, he comes to her and reminds her of the debt, of the oath that she paid, made, and, um, and then shortly after that, um, asks her to give up her daughter. This man comes and takes the child, and she is, um, um, I don't know what to Submissive doesn't do it. She is patient, forbearing. Add your other words, but she she doesn't complain. She doesn't bring out her gun. Um, she should have. Wait, Marcy, wait. I'm serious. I know, I, I know. And Marcy, I'm serious too. I'd like you to wait. We've got a story to finish. <laughs> Whatever anybody, wait till we're done. Wait till we're done, and then you can take him apart all you want, or or, or Griselda for. I mean, if you're going to kill him, kill her. Anyway, here, let's wait. Let me get this story out. He, t he sends the child off to a relative um, on 338. Was there a chance word showing she had changed towards him, but he still could never find her anything but serious and kind, as glad, as humble, and as quick to serve, and in her love as she was wont to be? In everything the same, she did not swerve, and of her daughter not a word said she. There was no sign of that adversity to see upon her, and her daughter's name she never used in earnest or in game. So a number of years go by, they have a child, another one, and this one's a son, and once again he comes um, to test her, 
take, has the child taken away? This would be the tech. Well, he's already dead. You can't kill him again, but he, he's gone. And Griselda is humble again. She makes a place. By the way, the, the one thing I want to hold up here, whatever our feelings, because wait till we get there. Remember that Christ died when he was tortured. And all of us, whether we want to do it or not, are called to a cross somehow. What we do with that, or, or even how we deal with questions of justice, because we're not supposed to let unjust things happen. We're called to justice. Um, and you remember, remember when we did Dante, the, 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 the difficulty with Christianity, as Dante and Aquinas put him, is if you look at the nature, assume the nature, nobody was crucified more justly. It was a just act. So justice was served. He, he had to pay for our sins. If you look at the person who assumed that nature, no person was ever more unjustly treated. That's the great paradox at the center of Christianity. But we've got in front of us this call that we patiently forbear suffering, and we still serve for justice. We, try to, we don't let injustices go on in the world. Just keep that in mind, because that's clearly in back of Chaucer's mind, that remember, we've been seeing in, in story after story, the virtuous people are the people who have to learn to deny themselves, to to deny their will in order to love another for that person's good. So whatever you're thinking, hold on to that paradox as you go through this. Griselda gives up her son, and again, without complaining, and then Walter, <laughs> again, Walter um, wants to continue to test her, so he gets people to, to create this um, counterfeit um, what's the word, this pap bull from the papacy approving of his divorce and allowing him to marry him. And he tells Griselda this, and she once again willingly accepts it and add humiliation onto a humiliation. He lets her go home, takes away her clothes. She's dressed in, her, in the poverty rags in which he first greeted her, and then asks her to serve the woman who's going to take her place. So this young man and, and the supposed bride come to town and she does all she can to help with no complaint. There's nothing she's doing for herself. This is apparent, you know, as it's presented for his good. And when he finally sees how, how deep this good has gone, gone turn to 347. After all this has happened, the townspeople have begun to hate Walter. They want to kill him. Um, and um, on page 347, it says, um, in that the Marquis, having had the snatch of his desires, could feel disgrace attached to his estate in such a low, a low alliance, and when he could, would set, at, set it at defiance. The father hates him. And he, he always believed that because he was noble-born, he would never treat his daughter well. This is what's happened. In the middle of 347, Thus with her father for a certain space, this flower of love and wifely patience stayed. Never a word or look upon her face in front of others or alone conveyed a hint that she had suffered or betrayed. She's not feeling sorry for herself. She's not giving in to self-pity. She's not giving in to anger. She's suffering this all. Any remembrance of her former glory, her continence told nothing of her story. And that's no wonder, in her high estate, her spirit had a full humility, no tender mouth for food, no delicate hearts hungering after royal brood. That is, she didn't marry him because, like, what, what do you call them, social diggers or? Gold. 
gold diggers or women who want to get ahead in the world and use men. That was never a part of what she did. She entered into that marriage and humility offered her obedience when she made that vow. In front of others or alone conveyed a hint that she had suffered or betrayed any remembrance of her former glory. Her countenance told nothing of her story. And that's no wonder, in her high estate, her spirit had a full humility, no tender mouth for food, no delicate hearts hungering after royal brilliancy. She sought for nothing. She didn't try to get better than other people. She married in humility and love. Hearts hungering after royal brilliancy or show of pomp, benignly, patiently, she had lived wise in honor, void of pride, meek and unchanging at her husband's side. They speak of Job and his humility for clerics when they wish who can indict in praises nobly and especially in men, they praise few women when they write, yet none can reach a humbleness as white as women can, nor can be half so true as women are, or else it's something new. And remember, the women we've been looking at in the story have been far better than the men all along. The men are, uh, want to get ahead, want to be better than other people, are envious, getting back. It's the women who have shown a greater humility. So... In one sense, this seems to be affirming what she's doing. The woman comes, Griselda serves her, and finally, to, to complete this, page 351, three, bottom of 350. One thing I beg of you and warn you to never to go to her, never put... Now, Griselda's going to Walter when she sees this young, beautiful creature. She doesn't know that it's a daughter yet. Um... She, she says to Walter, not in anger, in absolute humility, one thing I beg of you and warn you to, never to goad her, never put her on trial, this tender girl, as I have known you to do, for she was fostered preciously, a vile, more delicate. I think the self-denial adversity might force on her would be harder for her to suffer than for me. When Walter saw the patience in Griselda, her happy face, no malice there at all, and thought of his offenses long upheld to test her, ever constant as a wall, grave, innocent, and ever at his call. The stubborn Marquis could no more repress his pity for such wifely steadfastness. It's enough. He says, enough. And he reveals that the, the girl before them is their daughter, that she's alive, and their son. When Griselda sees this, she passes out. She's it, it's like the suffering that she's born is too much. She, she falls to the ground unconscious. And when she gets up, she clasps her children to herself as if she's recovering kids from the dead. Because remember, for her, they're dead. So in this moment, it's like they've risen from the dead. And it's at that point that we're, we're told they lived happily ever after. They only lived for a short time afterwards. And Walter was succeeded by his son, and the, the, the people lived in peace. Now, um, Chaucer writes an envoy, a, a, a summary, in which he says, women don't put up with this. Don't ever, you know, there, are, there, are, there are some Griseldas in the world, but they're very rare. Um, and so he seems to be renouncing the story at this point and, and encouraging them not to follow Walter's example because it would be too much. I only want to take a few minutes with this uh, because I want to get on to Helena, but I, but I want to give this some time to, to hear everybody's response and what we do because there's, I think there's 
more here to be said than meets the eye. But so any responses besides wanting to shoot him? Any responses? No woman should let a man. She shouldn't give up her child knowing it's going to be killed. And look at all the lives of those children. All those years she thought they were dead. And that man, she deserved, she needed to kill him and then pray to Jesus Christ that he went to hell. Oh, <laughs> look at what he was going to do. He's a horrible, evil man. That is not a Jesus man. <laughs> Any, she baptized. Sorry? She baptizes. She places the yeah. cross on her daughter. She believes in I think she has a very deep peace inside of her, and yeah. she believes that, that we're just passing through, and you, and you need to, to, to do your best with what you're given. Yeah. And, and just trust in Jesus, I trust in you. She was trusted. Yeah. Because I don't think she had the option. I don't think she had yeah. it at 38. I don't yeah. know. <laughs> when, when you enter into a bad deal, and you're dealing with someone who is Spiteful, Demonic. selfish, and just bad. Right. I don't think you can break the deal somehow, right? Shoot him. <laughs> well, no, well, and send him to hell. You know, point, poison, whatever it would take for yeah. her. I'm serious about that. Right the ship. Well, yeah. Well, yeah. But, but, well, but if you go to very traditional Catholic, it's if you marry an alcoholic or you know, some, some. Right. Oh, this is way beyond alcohol. No, no, no. No, but, no, but take, no, the case, take the case. Take the case, yeah. You, you, I don't necessarily agree with that no. because my, my understanding how I was raised in the Catholic Church is that if it was unhealthy for the family, you had the right to do something about it. You may have, but it was still, I mean, forever and ever divorce didn't really start to like, well, the 50s the, and 60s. No, there was, in England, you had divorce in the 1600s and stuff, but it was always over money and property and, and aristocracy, but, but it was... Here's the deal. It is what it is, and you take it. It's not fair. It's not right. But you make your vow and you stick up. That's what it is. I, I'll, wait, hold I'm on. Right. Hold on. Hold on. I, I want to ask something of everybody because this is obviously touching nerves. And I'm, I'm asking. No, I'm really saying this very, very seriously. Very seriously. Um, I, I'd like to keep our focus on the story, not our personal feelings about other relationships. Let me make a general statement, just to, to in the efforts to try to bring the points that both of you are making. But whether you, whether you agree or not, let me make this and then get on, because I want to keep our focus here, because all of us know stories. All of us have experienced lots of things that we'd rather not have to have had to experience, all of us. The call from the center of our church is to reconcile justice and mercy. So if you've got an alcoholic, and let me say better or worse, the church forever, even with the stupid things that clergy people do, or, or parents or families do. The call is to bring justice and mercy together. So the, the appropriate response isn't just to passively suffer something. It, there's a call to be active somehow. Now, in the particular circumstances, how anybody does that, I don't want to, we, we'll, we'll all have different stories. I just want to put the principle there. The principle is we, we are asked to bring justice and mercy together. That's our call. That's an imitation of Christ on the cross. If anybody takes it seriously, it means you can't just kill somebody whether you want to or not because justice doesn't demand that. If somebody's an alcoholic or is doing something wrong, you want to answer it justly, 
not vengefully, not vengefully, not damning anybody. That's not our business. That's a danger. The position of the church is to bring those two things together. Now, let me say that and leave it. I'd like right now to ask everybody not to go into these personal things. I'd like to confine ourselves to the story. There's something not good to say about Walter. I think it's been said eloquently. <laughs> There's can, Here, because I want to ask, I want to take up Mary's. Um, because Chaucer, Chaucer's not stupid. He, he's, not, he's not dumb. He's shown us the best and worst of us as humans. Is there something to be said for Griselda along the lines of Christ? I just want to get that out. And, I, and I, I'm saying that aware that I don't want to do away with justice because the, the issue of justice here is a real one. Marcy's raising a really, a really important... What do you do to answer a husband if he's doing that? But my question right now is not to go there because I think all of us don't like what Walter's doing. My question is, is there something to be said for Griselda that's important for us to see? If so, what is it? Because the ultimate outcome of this story, because we've been... If I cut the story in half, in the middle, at the point where Marcy wanted to end it, would we, would we have the story? Would there be a justice? And I'm going to say no. But we, we've got to deal with the whole story here, not part of it. I'm not going to, I'm not going to end it there. We have to deal with the whole. And, and what happens at the whole is, in an amazing, in almost a miraculous way, this family is reunited. The, the stupidity of this man is answered. What can we say on, is there something to be said on behalf of Griselda? Mary started. Can anybody add anything? Justin, yeah. I actually think there's a couple of different ways to approach this. On the one hand, you know, like for, for Aristotle and for Thomas Aquinas, like what brings true happiness to a person, at least as much as you can gain in this life, is not through, you know, fame or honor or power or wealth, it is through practicing the virtues, right? And so the stories presented Griselda, even before she ever got married, as being, yes, physically beautiful, but also had this interior beauty of being a very virtuous woman, right? Mm -hmm. And sure enough, you know, she gets married to the Marquis, and the townspeople, I don't know how much they really liked him at first, but they fell in love with her, and, you know, they would get in quarrels, and she would get them all fixed, you know. She resolved problems publicly. Yeah, yeah. I, you kind of said it's almost like, almost like a Princess Diana type character. Like, the people just <laughs> loved her, right? Everybody loved her, and she's like, she's this commoner that's now royalty, and she's like, awesome. But in Griselda, you never see this hint of her trying to, like, move up any kind of a chain, or leverage her position to try and gain anything for herself, because I, and, I, and I'm asking this almost more of the, as a question, but is it that she didn't really see there anything needing to be gained for herself, because she already had because she was already practicing the virtuous life, it's not like you could super add anything on top of that that would add to her happiness, right? So that, that would just be one question that I would ask. And then I think there's also maybe a parable here, possibly, in, you know, not that, not that God outright acts like a scoundrel like Walter does, but from our limited viewpoint... You know, because we don't know the whole story. We don't know that he's sending the daughter right. off and she's totally right. safe and everything. Or that somebody's going to rescue Constance yeah, at sea. Exactly, or yeah. All this. We yes. don't know. We yeah. don't know the backstory. We don't know all his little, like, maneuverings that he's doing over here. 
And we're just kind of called to just forbear and trust and keep our oath to him, you know. Um, I don't know. I just wonder if maybe there's a, it's working on a, those couple of levels yeah. possibly. Let me offer one more thought, and then I want to go to Shakespeare, because Shakespeare's going to give us a, um, a very different image of a woman. That's why I put the two together. Because I think Helen is an extraordinary woman, and in some ways she's the antithesis of, of uh, Griselda. Let me just offer one thought along Justin's. I don't think anybody's happy with Walter. I mean, I, I'd, I mean personally, I'd, I'd like to string him up, and if I'd been president, I don't know that I would take it out of gun, but I would have had serious things to say to him. I mean, truly, I would have. I, if, if I knew what was going on and I saw that, I, I, I would have words for that man. But, but there's something that Chaucer's holding up, and just a thought here that it's a little bit along the lines of what Justin's saying now, and also along the lines that we, of what we saw with the um, wife of Bath's story. One of the issues here, I mean, I, I thought Justin put it really well, we don't have the backstory and we don't know what's ahead, but we do know that God allows evil things to happen. This is at the center of Boethius. God allows evil things to happen to test us. And we know that very often our reaction to tests can be wrong. Not virtuous. We can get violent, we can do wrong things and feel justified because of the injustice done to us. And we watch violence perpetuate itself in our world. We know that God allows evil to test us to see whether how virtuous we are. One of the serious questions I think Griselda's asking us to see, even, even in the face of our dislike of what this husband does, because it's despicable in some ways, is, um, is that the story makes us aware, as in all, it's, it's amazing to me that it involved the women, that they're so superior, they're, they're morally so superior to the men who are idiots generally in these stories, um, that it's through the humility of somebody's actions that a greater opening is given to God to do his work, to bring a greater justice. And we see it in the wife of Bastille with that woman. And it's interesting to me, I mean, one of the ways you can look at the end is it through her humility and what she suffers, in, she's not stupid, and she's not violent. She's a, she's a virtuous woman. I mean, how much she's dealing with injustices is a serious question. But I think he's showing us the, the power of humility to work as he does in other stories. One of the parallels between this and the wife of Bath story is that through this humility that she exhibits, it's like a transformation takes place and this glorious thing happens. So it's as if it's a reminder that, that for us to, to not forget that when we go through trials of suffering and we have to endure something, our belief is it's going to lead to this, if, this glory, this thing. You know, whether it's the wife being transformed or suddenly a mother seeing her children in all their glory in a way that wouldn't, wouldn't have been possible. That is, leave, leave the children with the mother for the next 10 years and, and they grow up and everything's fine, they're successful, they have careers. Would she have ever known the glory that she knows in that moment when she's lost them? And so there's very much of a resurrection sort of story to this that it's, it's like the winner's tale. Those of you who've done it know how extraordinary that story is. That, that our faith is, no matter what happens, if we hold to our belief, there will be a glory. We don't know the backstory of everything. We have to be careful of our story ourselves because we act as if we know everything. And very often we're, we are our worst enemies. 
So in one sense, the story is an affirmation of a faith and a humility. To, to never forget that because that's what Christ showed. God was crucified on a cross. If there were ever an, an, an act that needed vengeance, it would be that. He didn't take it. He didn't do it. I mean, he, wait, wait, he, 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 he suffered. So at the center of our faith is, at the center of our belief is this faith that no matter what happens, we believe if we're good, even if we have to suffer through something we don't want to suffer through, there will be this thing. Now, I know I'm leaving out the question of justice here, and I, I, I know that. I'm just, I'm trying to hold on to what Chaucer's given us. I don't want to lose, you know, he, um, even though he, in the envoy he says, don't do this, men, because it's foolish. You know, that, but sorry, Mary, go ahead. Sunday, we, we read that from Timothy in the, in the first reading, where he says, hold true to your profession of, of faith. You, you Remember what you promised, Timothy, and hold true to that. And she held true to her promise all yeah. the way through this yeah. story. And for her not to have held true, I get it, I get it, that we all look for that, like the wife, I'm going to justify all my actions. Well, she wasn't like that. She said, I... I, yeah. I said my profession, I said this is what I'm going to do, and she held to it. Yeah. And so if for her to do anything else would have just yeah. taken There's away from her. No, she, she didn't. When she said she would obey him, he was now murdering her children, mm -hmm. and that was not the vow that she accepted. Let's here um, remember. I mean, there's two sides here, and you know, Abraham would have asked to put the stake through. Right, right, right. We have to be ready to give up the one thing we love because yes. everything we're given is His, and it's His yeah. to take away. Yeah. So you yeah. Well, there's a difference though if God takes it versus a human. Well, well, well yeah. Well, yeah. Here, let me. I, I want to just make a comment, and I'm going to stop here because the, obviously there's. We, we, this is a subject we could take several weeks on and still... Two, two things. Now I'm going to speak personally for myself. I absolutely believe in the Abraham story as, as a man of father. And it's interesting to me that Sarah's not around when he does that. If you could imagine Sarah being around at that moment, I, I just... But leave it there. My own belief, personal belief is, I think I'm... I mean, this is from our church, unless I'm, I don't believe I misunderstand it. The call is to justice and mercy, both, not one or the other. What we have in the Griselda story is this extraordinary humility. And the, the, the way Mary's setting up, I, I don't want to lose. I mean, Mar Marcy's concern is a real one. I mean, on the, you know, he's doing. But um, there's a couple of things I don't want us to forget. And, and it's important for me because I want to set this up for the next story because Helen is a very different figure, and I want to, I want to get to that. Remember... The, the wife of Bath does nothing, absolutely nothing, without justifying herself. Absolutely nothing. She uses men, she, she bargains, she trades on her sex. Um, um, she, she never does anything without justifying herself. She's always got a reason. Never lacks a reason for what she's doing. Christ was absolutely silent in the travesty of a triumph. There was no man ever treated so unjustly, he said nothing. If there were ever a man who had a reason for justifying what he was doing, he was going to be condemned. He was going to be killed. Unjust, well, justly, and un I mean, that's the problem with it. But he didn't say a word. He didn't say a word. 
I just want to leave you with this question. Is there something in Griselda's actions that are Christ-like that we're meant to see because it's so easy to go the other way? And just hold it. I'm not justifying Walter. I hope I've been clear on that. But I'm looking at this woman and seeing something extraordinary that, that few men, few women can do. And in at least one respect, it's Christ-like. And we have to make a place for that because of what Christ did, not us. Now let me leave it, because here's what's going to happen. We're going to do Shakespeare, and we're going to look at a very different woman, and I'm going to say a very modern woman. When we finish with her, I want to come back to Griselda and ask you, what do we do with these two women? One looks back to a Christian Middle Ages, deeply Christian. The other one's very modern and seems Christian. Is she? Where, this is one of Shakespeare's most extraordinary women. If you've read Merchant of Venice, you know how Portia, what an extraordinary woman she is. This is a woman who's at least as extraordinary as Portia. What do we do with her? Okay? If we can leave Griselda and all the, all the up-in-the-air differences that we have here, and, and let me get started on this. I've got to do this quickly. Um, yeah, I've got 15 minutes on it here. If we can, here, very quickly, a couple of things here. If I can go through this very, very quickly. We are, in going from the clerk's tale to all's well, in going from the Canterbury Tales to Shakespeare, we are leaving a medieval... Catholic world, the the Reformation has not taken place. This is a unified Catholic world. We're entering into modernity and with all of its fractures, all of them. Now, a number of things have happened that Shakespeare's aware of, and it's important to keep these things in mind. Machiavelli's written, okay? In The Prince, Machiavelli makes this argument. What Machiavelli is doing is treating politics like a science, and that's why today that we have the science... Political science. As I hope everybody hears it. UD had politics. All of the universities, political science. Because for Machiavelli, you could reduce it to a rationalized principle. And the principle was, he makes this argument, that basically, because a prince had to keep rule over his people, the ends justified the mean. He could use any means he wanted so long as he attained his end. Which meant... Excuse me. People are expendable. That's a fundamental. I hope I'm, I'm. I'm hoping everybody's here. If you watch TV programs that deal with political situations at all, you know people get killed all the time. They're expendable. Rulers make decisions all the time, knowing that it's going to cost. Sometimes I, I think about Churchill's decision when he had to choose to let that town go in order to save hundreds and hundreds of thousands of lives. That's different from a political figure who's, who's treating people as expendable because they want to get ahead themselves. There's a fundamental difference. But we're into Machiavellian politics. The whole modern world, the nature of politics in the modern world is Machiavellian. That's just a fundamental fact of life. One of the questions I've got to ask here, <laughs> I hate doing this, is Helena Machiavellian? If we get enough time here, we know from the beginning that she sets out with a project in mind. I just want to put the question out. I want to answer it. I want to take it up. Is she Machiavellian? One. Machiavelli's written. Copernicus is written. The scientific revolution has taken place. 
when science displaces the church, the sacramental world is fractured badly. The Protestant Reformation turns away from it. So in the modern world, we've turned away from a sacramental sense of the trans... Tolkien had it. C.S. Lewis had it. They're, they're minorities writing aware that we've lost a sense of the sacramental in our world. Science has replaced it. Everything's factual. It can be... It can be if politics is a science, it means it's got determinisms. They can be predicted. That's a very different understanding from politics the way the ancient world understood it. So Copernicus is written. And one of the statements in All's Well is, there are no more miracles. Helen is going to go to the king with, with, the, with the sure conviction that she can cure him. But everybody understands if that cure takes place, it's a miracle. How does she do that? And she, 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 she sees herself as not taking God for granted, but she knows that sometimes you have to risk something trusting that God will help you. So there's a whole miraculous dimension to this work that's very important to the whole action. Okay? And Helen's instrument, a woman, not the men, these stupid men that we're talking about these days, it's a woman again, it's a woman who's the instrument for bringing this all up. Why, why for Shakespeare a woman? I want to come back to that. Um, Machiavelli, Copernicus, um, Henry VIII made himself the supreme head of the church and created um, the conditions for a totalitarian government. Anybody who went against him was condemned to death. He wanted to take control of the human soul, its spiritual ends, which is the end of the church, not the state. I hope everybody's clear in that. He asked everybody to sign that. Anybody who didn't um, came under the act of treason law. It was an act of treason to oppose it. Thomas More was put in jail. We watched the movie together and executed as a matter of conscience. When the, re when the rest of what was a Catholic England caved. Um, so Henry increases state powers in what he does. Shakespeare's aware of that. Okay, Henry's done it. Luther and Calvin have written, and their writings took away the sacraments. Shakespeare is aware of everything. I've told you all before, those, I can't remember we've done Hamlet, but remember Hamlet's, Hamlet went to school at Wittenberg, where Luther hung up his theses. And the play Hamlet starts with, surprise, surprise, a private revelation. He sees a ghost. It's on the basis of that experience that... This guy has to go through life trying to deal with a supernatural reality that nobody can deal with. Shakespeare is absolutely aware of what's going on. Okay? Last thing. We talked about the importance of Plato's cave over and over and over again. And I, I, it should be clear by now. Um, did you hand out that thing on the regime's doc? If you've got, don't look at it now. Don't, I don't, just don't, please, because we've got to go. Um, I gave you that sheet that shows you that Shakespeare's written all of these plays that have these different political settings because he's aware in, in the terms of Plato's cave that every regime has its own cave setting. The ethos is different. So it, it, we're in a different world, right? We're still in the cave, but each regime sees appearances in terms of its own ethos. So the people in a, a city in Turkey... It's going to be different from one in Bangladesh, China, or India, or Africa, or wherever we are. 
Shakespeare was a master of that. The, the reason he's so important is because he writes when the Holy Roman Empire has collapsed and we're on the verge of the modern world where, where secular states are taking on absolute powers. And he's looking at each one of them. So here he's dealing with France. And if you know anything about France, you know how intellectual they are, far more intellectual than the English. They love words, they love being in the intellect, and at the time Shakespeare was writing before the French Revolution, it was aristocratic. Now what's going on in the play? And I'll, just a few more minutes and I'll stop. We're entering a world in which a French aristocracy is in decay. The king's sick. The lords have been dying off. We're in, a, we're in a rigid, stratified world. Helena loves Bertram. He belongs to the landed class. According to that society, there's, listen, this is crucial. There's no way in which that love, love, which is a transcendent thing, can be consummated. Because the class system will prevent it. So we're watching an old aristocratic system crumbling. This woman loves somebody from an upper class. Okay? So the lords are going off to war. They're trying to prove their strength. The king makes it clear that the lords of the previous generation were noble, heroic, self-giving, and the lords of this day are concerned with show and fashion. So we're watching a French world crumbling, in some sense incestuous. The opening lines almost make that clear. They're so ingrown with each other. Shakespeare is aware of what's going on. This is Charlemagne's world. It's looking back to this great French world under Charlemagne, the heroic deeds it did, and we're watching it crumble. The men go off to Italy. What's taking place in Italy? You already know from Dante. This great change in concepts of the city is taking place. Helena goes there. When she comes back, she introduces something into this French world that will radically change it. Now, I'm going to say something that's going to seem absurd. <laughs> I'm going to say Helena... <laughs> I'm going to do it anyway. Helena is the prototype, the prefiguration of French Revolution. She's bringing a principle of equality from the Italian Renaissance, all the changes that are going on there, that's going to radically change what's going on in France. So the story's about this extraordinary woman who loves this man. He's an idiot. Lots of people would say he should be shot. He wants to go to war and help to get killed, so he doesn't, <laughs> doesn't have to marry, marry her. Right. No, so, Mary. so he here, die Mary. so we've got a, we've got, we've got, a, we've got a woman going to Italy. Come Hold on. So Shakespeare's aware that the Italian, ref, the Italian Renaissance, is moving west, and that eventually it'll get to France and England, and the transformations that it will work will be extraordinary. So that's where we're going. I just want you to keep in mind Griselda, however Christ-like she is or not, and Helena, so we can look at these two women, okay? You guys behave this next week. See, see you next week. <laughs> it's going to be safe.